walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast. This is episode three. I'm Dave Whitson, sitting in Portland, Oregon, where, guess what? It is still raining. We have roughly, I don't know, 10 inches of rain so far this month, about twice the normal average, and uh, it seems like it's going to continue to keep falling for the next forever. But that's okay. We need it. It was a a dry last year, so uh, I imagine that it will set us up for a very lovely spring if we can ever make it there. But again, it's great in these rainy times to think about pilgrimage, and I have a West Coast edition of the podcast for you today. We have joining us Sandy Brown. He's the author of the brand new guidebook to the way of St. Francis in Italy, going from Florence to Rome. And he'll talk about his process making that guidebook and and tell us all about this relatively new route that is an option well worth considering. We'll also be joined by someone I know well, Maria Slade. She's a student at a high school in Portland, and she traveled with me over the summer on the Via Podiensis in France. And she has a couple of great stories to tell from uh, Estong and from Conch. And then we'll be joined by Zena Bell from Thousand Oaks, California, who is going to talk about her favorite piece of gear. So that's the plan in this third episode. So get comfortable or get walking, whatever's best for you with your podcast experience and uh, enjoy. Sandy Brown joins me now. Sandy is the author of the brand new guidebook to the way of St. Francis in Italy. Welcome to the Camino podcast, Sandy. Thanks. Great to be here, Dave. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to this. You know, I've, I've been familiar with you for, for a while through your blog, Caminoist, but uh, never had the chance to actually talk. So I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to get things rolling. Um, I know from reading your blog that you have a really rich and varied pilgrimage background. What brought you to the Camino the first time around and what keeps drawing you back? Well, you have a great pilgrimage background also, Dave. So I'm talking <laughs> to somebody here that uh, that's done a lot of miles over many years, and I really respect that and uh, look forward to learning from you about things over the uh, upcoming months and years. So thanks for this contact. Well, I'll tell you, I read the book by Paulo Coelho called The Pilgrimage mm-hmm. back in about 1992. And I said to myself, I'm going to walk this pilgrimage sometime. And so I finally got around to it about 16 years later. 2008 was my first Camino de Santiago de Compostela in um, the Camino Frances Mm -hmm. trail, starting at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So after doing it once, it was clear to me that it was something that I could enjoy doing again and Mm -hmm. then on different routes again and again. So it's become what I do for my vacations in the summertime. And if uh, there's a year that I don't walk, I feel a little bit guilty and feel like I need to get out and uh, find another path someplace. It really does offer a sort of balance to the year, doesn't it? Just having that, 
you know, at some point every year that uh, it, it almost resets the body and the mind in a way to be able to go away for pilgrimage for a month. Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of the fun of pilgrimage is planning for it. So, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so you're looking for a guidebook, you're looking for the exact route, you're worrying, uh, you know, what's the infrastructure going to be like, and uh, and so all of that is a piece of the excitement that goes to, you know, getting up, getting away from your place uh, where you're comfortable, and then getting out and doing something that is really kind of stretching yourself. That's so true. I, I realize there are people out there who enjoy making the spontaneous decision and jumping into a walk without any planning or, or formal preparation. Uh -huh. But that, that's, that's not me. I don't work that way. And I think about the fact that, you know, I can squeeze four months of uh, enjoyment out of a one month pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, another fun thing is, too, that once your bag is packed the first time, then you're an expert at it if you've been <laughs> gone for a month with your same pack. And so basically, my pack is packed all the time. Yeah. And um, so it's sitting up there above the closet. I just uh, have my uh, hiking shoes to put on and then clean clothes to throw in, and I'm ready to go. Yeah. But the planning of the route and so on, that's the part that becomes interesting after you've convinced yourself that you can overcome the physical challenge of it. So beyond the planning with regards to the actual walking, is there a defining pilgrimage moment that sticks out in your memory from all of these different walks? You know, there are many, many that stick out, but I have to say it's the very first day that I learned the most about pilgrimage. Hmm. Now, I should say the first 24 hours <laughs> because I had flown into France. I made my way to Bayonne, where I was taking the train up to Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port to begin my first day on my first pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And I was disappointed to note that there were other people with hiking boots and backpacks. <laughs> and I thought, this is disturbing that people would be, um, you know, they would be imposing themselves on my <laughs> solitary walk. How dare they? And yeah, exactly. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to kind of ignore them and plan to do my own thing. So I went up, slept at night, got up in the morning, and proceeded about half a day walking all by myself. But then I found myself, uh, when I saw somebody new, I was passing them on the route on the way up, um, I would want to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon people were trying to connect me. Uh, with other people. So, oh, you're American. Well, there's four American <laughs> college students from St. Louis just ahead of you. Have you met them yet? Yep. So then I discovered the social aspect of pilgrimage, and that ended up being such a big surprise. Mm -hmm. But the real delight of pilgrimage, walking with other people, and the relationships that you have in the midst of uh, the walking, where you talk with somebody for a day or a week or two weeks, as mm -hmm. you're walking together. And so the first day I discovered that and everything has changed as a result. Of it. Mm. Now you are a pastor, correct? Uh-huh. Yes. How does that, I've, how does that shape your experience as a pilgrim? Well, it's interesting. I, um, one time I thought that I would do the pilgrimage as sort of a vacation from being a pastor. <laughs> and then it all ends up being about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize that as I was talking with somebody for a day or two days or a week, 
that I was living out the role of pastor, even sometimes in a more intense way Mm -hmm. than I was living it out on a day-to-day basis in my church, because people were sharing their problems, they were sharing their issues, they were struggling with religion, because there usually is a religious aspect on the pilgrimage, and even if somebody feels that they are secular or spiritual but not religious, they still end up having questions. And so I'm either an apologist for the church, (laughs) or I'm a counselor uh, in a pastoral role. And even on occasion, I've had uh, the opportunity to uh, bless the sacraments and do communion. So Mm. it ends up being not a vacation from being a pastor at all, something that really is more intense um, pastoral role. Mm -hmm. So that's just for me. That wouldn't be for the average person, I think, but that's the way it always ends up. Yeah. With all of your interest in the planning, it makes sense that you would eventually transition into writing a guidebook. So what yeah. <laughs> what what drew you to the way of St. Francis? What brought you to that pilgrimage that would ultimately lead you to writing a guidebook? Well, let me tell you, you had a role in that yourself. Oh. You may not realize this. Wow. But uh, the role is that I was walking the Camino del Norte mm-hmm. in 2012. And I was juggling the French guidebook on one hand and the Spanish guidebook on another hand. And then people were using a German guidebook. (laughs) And um, I was thinking, darn, there needs to be an English language guidebook here. (laughs) So I kind of hem and hawed around and looked around at publishers and so on. And then your guidebook on the Northern Caminos came out. Sorry about that. And... (laughs) I was so disappointed. Uh, But in the meantime, a friend of mine had said, let's move down to uh, walk in a Camino in Italy and say goodbye to St. James for a while Mm. and say hello to St. Francis. And so I had this Assisi to Rome Camino under my belt at that point. So I proposed to your publisher of uh, your Northern Caminos book that uh, they do something on the Via di Francesco. And they said yes. So it had been such a great experience walking with some Camino de Santiago friends that I was happy to do a guidebook on that route. I'm really glad that worked out for you. What is? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I mean, it's it, it's a uh, it, making a guidebook is really hard. I, I mean, maybe that's. I, I, what's your experience? What was your experience as you went through this process of constructing a guidebook? Well, first of all, I should have called you and said, hey, is this going to be hard? (laughs) (laughs) Because absolutely, you're right. It's very hard. And uh, what was great for you is that you already had background in the uh, route and the Mm -hmm. routes itself that your book covers. And uh, maybe had already walked them a couple of times. Yeah. And yeah. And in my case. The route is not as clearly defined. In mm-hmm. fact, the Via di Francesco is one of four routes that cover the sites uh, relating to St. Francis in Umbria and parts of Tuscany and Lazio. Mm-hmm. So the first question was, what is the exact route that I'll use for the guidebook? Mm-hmm. Which of these four um, routes that are out there are going to be the best for me. And that, you know, that plagues uh, the decision-making all the way down the line. I feel very confident in the route that I chose 
because I stuck with the primary one, which is uh, put forward by the Department of Tourism of the region of Umbria. Mm -hmm. But basically what the Via de Francesco lacks is a historic itinerary. Hmm. So the Camino Frances is, uh, you know, the um, Codex Calixtinus, mm -hmm. uh, where the walk happened in, what was it, the year, around the year 900 or so, and yep. it was documented. And so for a thousand years, people have known this is the route, and these places are named. Mm -hmm. Same with uh, the Via Francigena, mm -hmm. which is the Sigiris route as he came back from Rome to Canterbury. But in the case of the Via de Francesco, it's sites that are historically linked, but there's not an itinerary that mm -hmm. is linked. So there are many ways to do these sites. So it's choosing one route uh, to get uh, the most out of the sites as possible. So that was really the first challenge. Then other challenges presented themselves. If I had the opportunity to do it today, I'd probably do it differently. Mm -hmm. Probably what I would do is I would spend, like I did, about six months researching the biography of Francis and the sites. Then I would do what I did as well, which is take a month of time to study Italian so that I would have hmm. the ability to, uh, you know, to have some simple Italian phrases and words and communicate. But then I would probably take twice as long to walk the route. Mm -hmm. So I would walk every day as I did with dictation in one hand, with my GPS in the other hand, with my camera strapped around my neck and my laptop in my backpack. But then I would arrive at a place and I would stay an extra day and just mm -hmm. explore that place. So I would take two months to walk the route rather than the one month that's in our final itinerary. Yeah. I, I think that would have helped to understand the places better. So I went back to them in the last month as I was able to by train, but mm -hmm. I still feel like I'm discovering things even to this day. I'm just back from Italy a week now and spent three weeks discovering more about these places that are included in my guidebook. It's, uh, it's one of those things where from the moment that book is printed, I at least have been it's filled with, yeah, and you, I have been filled with regrets and wishes that I could do things differently, that I could go back to the beginning. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's a challenging thing to create a book that, as you say, is out of date from the moment it is available for purchase. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so that's a little bit daunting to recognize that. <laughs> You know, all of that geography out there, it's a, it's a movable target because there may be three different albergues and two hotels in certain location, and they're going to change. Some are going to go out of business, a new one is going to pop up. And um, so keeping track of it in the long term is, I mean, it's like you've written this book, but now you have a relationship with that area mm -hmm. because people are going to buy it a couple years from now. They're going to say, what's, I mean, is this current? And so, um, so now I have a, a long-term relationship with, uh, Umbria and the other sites outside of Umbria on this pilgrimage. And, um, uh, and I want to keep pilgrims abreast of what the changes are also so that as they use the guidebook, they know that it's current. So we're talking mechanics here, but let's talk about the route. What 
for people who are just now learning of the way of St. Francis for the first time, what should they know about it? What is the appeal? What do you think are the, the big highlights or selling points of, of this particular pilgrimage route? Well, I appreciate you asking that. I think that um, people need to recognize the Via di Francesco as a, as a sort of second step after doing at least the Camino Frances in Spain. And the big challenge with the Spanish Caminos right now is that they're reaching their capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think something like a quarter of a million pilgrims are walking these routes, primarily on the Camino Frances and primarily the last 100 kilometers of the Camino Frances. Yep. And what it means is that the experience is uh, intense with other pilgrims, sometimes competing for beds. And, uh, you know, it's tough to think that people have to get up early in the morning so they can rush to get to the next town mm-hmm. so that they can be certain that they have a bed before some other pilgrim gets that bed. So that's tough. And mm-hmm. so I think it's good to have alternatives that are going to be less um, populated so that people don't feel that they are competing with other people, but they're actually doing some exploring also. Mm-hmm. So that's what the Via di Francesco offers because the numbers, at the, rather than like 250,000 a year, the numbers are like 6,000 a year. Mm. So what that means is that there won't be quite as much pilgrim camaraderie at the same time, there is much more of a sense of nature, and uh, there is more of a sense of uh, ability to explore and have an adventure, as well as going from site to site. Uh, and a couple of other things are that the terrain is much more varied. It's much more challenging also, especially in the first quarter and the last quarter of these walk or the walk. Mm-hmm. So you're actually walking through a national forest. Wow! In the first five days, and if you're thinking of a parallel, it's maybe something more like the Appalachian Trail in hmm. the first five days, where you're going from mountain to mountain. The difference is that there are some ancient monasteries along the way that you'll visit, and uh, and it makes it pretty special That's because awesome. Saint Francis is in these locations also. And then in the big middle, once you get into Umbria, um, Umbria is an extremely beautiful place, and it's called by Italians the green heart of Italy. Hmm. So it's forests and farms, and there are lots of remote stretches where you're quite a ways away from a village. Mm-hmm. And so that's also a little bit different from the Spanish Caminos, uh, except for some stretches of the Camino del Norte where you're really out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And and the Camino Primitivo and so on. It's and then the last thing I would just say is mm-hmm. that the food in Italy is <laughs> incomparable. Yeah. So if you walk the Camino Francese and you've gotten tired of uh, French fries every day <laughs> and uh, menu del Pellegrino, then uh, in Italy you'll be delighted that everything is new and fresh and different. Every town has its own unique pasta and different sausage and cheese, mm-hmm. and the natives are delighted to share that with you. You know, I was on the Via Francigena for the first time in, well, in December of 2004, 
uh, and then back in 2005 with students, and it was it was kind of a disaster. There weren't really many way marks. But when I returned in yeah. 2009, the way marks were solid, and guide, the first English language guidebook was available. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this route is going to blow up now. Like there's going to be a huge surge here comparable to what has happened in Spain. But really, yeah. right up to this moment, that hasn't happened. There's still yeah. um, very few pilgrims walking either route in Italy, the Via Francigena or the Via San Francesco. So um, I'm, sh I'm really shocked by that. Yeah. Well, just wait, because <laughs> um, Emilio Estevez and Martin Sheen are probably going to make a movie someday. <laughs> and uh, And... If they do make it on the Via di Francesco or the Via Francigena, then yeah. uh, look out. That'll do it. But I know that that's drawn a lot of Americans. And in fact, I haven't walked one of the Spanish routes since mm -hmm. 2013, no, 2012. Mm -hmm. But I hear there are a lot more Americans there. And of course, a lot of Germans came after Hoppe Kirkling's book. Yep. A lot of Koreans came after a Korean book. And um, so it does take a sort of narrative, I think, to make it interesting to a, a cultural or language group. Mm -hmm. And um, so when that happens on the Francigena or on the Via di Francesco, I think we might see that kind of increase. So this route starts in Florence and ends in Rome. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, yes. Those are two big selling points right there. <laughs> yeah, and the CC is in the middle too. So. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so obviously, Florence is fabulous. Mm -hmm. And Florence is the capital of the Renaissance. So mm -hmm. here are Michelangelo things, and here are great frescoes, and uh, here is one of the great art museums of the world, the Uffizi Gallery. Mm -hmm. And then what's so interesting is in the first five days, you're walking up into the mountains and you go to these monasteries that are much older than the Renaissance. So you actually sort of feel like you're stepping back, going back in time from the Renaissance mm -hmm. to the time when religion really kind of ran things as you go to Camaldoli Monastery and then Santuario della Verna and then Monte Casale. Of those three in about four days from each other. Then walking through Umbria, you're going through these hill towns. Mm -hmm. And the hill towns, if you've ever been into this part of central Italy, you're in the valley and you look up and here's a town that's clinging onto the mountainside. And those are the sorts of places that you go to, mm -hmm. Assisi being a great example. And ending in Rome, um, you know, some people do say when they end in Santiago de Compostela that they're a little bit underwhelmed. <laughs> it's kind of a mid-sized city with a rainy climate and uh, kind of gray sometimes. But uh, nobody really complains about Rome being no. underwhelming. There's so much there. So I think it's a great destination. It's really one of the great pilgrimage destinations in the world. And one of the things that I think makes it great from a pilgrim's perspective is there is uh, a spedale, the Italian equivalent of an albergue. Exactly. So there is yeah. a pilgrim-specific place to stay where you get really uh -huh. remarkable hospitality by the Italian confraternity. Which is famous in uh, the community Santiago as well. Yep. That's, that's actually when you were asking what one of my great experiences was um, in pilgrimage. That's one that I was going to give the example of. I was leaving a town on the Meseta 
and I was walking, I walked to Castro Heriz, the albergues were full, mm-hmm. and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, well, I'll just keep walking on to, uh, I think it is, um, Vega de Valcarce is next. Mm-hmm. And so I kept walking, it was um, getting about seven o'clock, it was quite hot, and I, by the time I got to Punte Titero mm-hmm. and um, San Nicola, I had walked about 45 kilometers or so. And I sat down in front of the albergue and I said, uh, do you have a place for me? And the Italian said, no, sorry, we're full, completo. And um, so I discovered that I get a little teary-eyed after about 40 kilometers if I don't have a bed. (laughs) (laughs) And so those started to well up in my eyes and this Italian uh, hospitalero said, Actually, maybe we do have a bed. Hmm. And so he pulled out a mat up in the chancel area of this great albergue. And we cooked dinner together, and then they washed our feet, and we played games with wine pitchers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was spectacular, these Italian hospitaleros. And that's definitely one of the top albergues I've ever been to, and one of the great experiences as a pilgrim. Yeah. To go from anxiety and sense of defeat and where am I going to sleep at night to the sudden hospitality and uh, joy that they were sharing as they were um, doing their service to pilgrims. It's a, it's incredible hospitality. The other thing that's interesting or that's notable to me about Rome is I think some pilgrims might be concerned about ending in a city that is huge and busy and filled with tourists. And my students have sometimes felt ambivalent as well upon arrival in Rome, but there are options. And one of the things that we started doing uh, when my second group arrived is there's a loop, a tradition of seven pilgrim churches in Rome. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've start, we started visiting those churches and they're remarkable. And, you know, everyone goes to the Vatican, but not everyone goes to the Lateran or, or St. Paul's outside the walls, which is uh, just uh-huh. an incredible place. And so there are ways, if people don't want to immediately transition to tourism, to experience Rome genuinely as pilgrims. And, you know, if you were writing a guidebook on the Via di Francesco, mm-hmm. it would just make so much sense to include as your last chapter a walking <laughs> guide to the seven pilgrim churches of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> so, and thank goodness I did that. So That's awesome. I'm glad that you've enjoyed those churches. That's They're spectacular. I was holding yeah, my breath right. there, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I should say, you know, it's common to go to the four basilica churches. Yep. Uh, you know, if you are a practicing Roman Catholic, you want to go to Santa Maria Maggiore or to St. John Lateran. But it would often be the case that you would miss uh, uh, Santa Croce in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. or that you would miss San Lorenzo mm-hmm. or San Sebastian, but those are churches that should be seen because of what they have in the story, and they're the old part. In some cases, you know, the the Byzantine with the uh, part of the Roman experience, and they're out of the core, they're beyond the walls, and. Um, so you're exactly right. That's part of the experience that uh, that can be very valuable. One or two more questions. I'm curious if there's anything that you learned about pilgrimage through the process of writing a guidebook 
Did it change the way you think about pilgrimage at all? Hmm. I have to say that um, I've come to understand that there is a selfishness about pilgrimage. Hmm. And, um, you know, the challenge of a pilgrim is um, you walk all day long. Well, first of all, you said goodbye to your family and <laughs> wish them well yep. to take care of yourselves while I'm gone. So that's the first thing. And so there's a little bit of selfishness to say, I'm leaving. And then the next bit of selfishness is you get to a country and it's like, I'm a pilgrim now, take care of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm going to examine your food. When I'm done with my 20 or 25 or 30 or 40 kilometers, I'm going to be exhausted, a little bit um, grumpy. Now <laughs> feed me and do all of this at the lowest cost possible mm-hmm. because I'm a pilgrim and I expect to have uh, bargain basement food and uh, lodging. So there is an aspect of pilgrimage that's kind of like that. And um, so I regret that. I, I believe that a pilgrim needs to make a contribution to the area that a pilgrim visits. So it worries me when there's an albergue, a hostel that uh, is by donation, and somebody thinks that means that it's free. Mm-hmm. Uh, it worries me that pilgrims are not um, as appreciative of the hospitality if they're extended uh, as they should be. And so um, I worry that writing a guidebook opens people up to expectations and um, that the best that they'll offer in return is that they'll be a tourist in a country. I hope that there'll be something more than that mm. and that they'll uh, come away with an appreciation of the land and a sense of gratitude to the people that have hosted them. Mm. What's next for you? Do you see yourself committing to another guidebook project? Do you have another pilgrimage in mind? Well, I'll tell you, um, I better figure something out before you do, because you always get the best ones first. <laughs> Not the best ones necessarily, but I, I, but I, I do have... admire the Northern Caminos. Those are priceless, and uh, I'd love to go back and do the Camino del Norte again, and maybe this time walk through the Camino Primitivo. Mm-hmm. But I love Italy, and I have invested myself in Italy, and... Uh, So I'm just back from Italy, actually, and I spent three weeks doing updates on my guidebook. So I have five pages I'm sending into the publisher uh, to be put on the book's website so that um, people will know the very latest on the route and uh, accommodation. So I've got that done. I think I may lead a group on the uh, Via di Francesco this coming year and working with a couple of different uh, possible tour companies on that. And I am kind of looking out for other potential pilgrimages. Mm. There are some in Italy, and there are some in a couple of other countries. And um, it's exciting. Of course, the challenge is, if it's a pilgrimage that's not well-traveled, then the book is likely not to be (laughs) well-purchased either. Mm -hmm. So um, I would love to be able to serve in this way. I feel it's kind of an honor to have done a first English-language guidebook. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to have that honor again if um, worthy and important pilgrimage should present itself. How about you? I'm stretched pretty thin. You know, it's the reality is, as you said, you are forming a long-term relationship with that one route. And um, yeah. my 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 job is such now that I have even less summer than I used to to draw upon. Um, and it's important to me to be able to 
keep doing the student walks. And so between being able to take the students out and being able to commit time to actually rewalking the Camino del Norte with any sort of regularity, that really precludes me from making that kind of a commitment to any other route. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 I'm with you. What, uh, if, if people want to order the guidebook, what's the best place for them to go to do that? Easiest on uh, one of the online retailers, Amazon.com has it, BarnesandNoble.com has it. It's also possible if they're in foreign countries, uh, non-U.S. countries like U.K. to get it directly from the publisher very easily, Cicerone.co.uk. Uh, I, but it's uh, it's out there by um, Internet. It's the easiest way to go. I have found that um, Cicerone does make it available at a very reasonable shipping rate. And uh, I will I will note on your behalf that Amazon largely eats up the author's share of... Uh, of the book price, oh, so I, I do uh, encourage everyone who wants to support authors to buy from the publisher okay. direct. So, um, okay. so I would keep that well, in mind. Well, let me add one other thing. Yeah. Let, let me add just one other thing, then. It's also possible through my personal website, where I make the largest return uh, for an author that's possible. That's awesome. And that's Caminoist.org. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, it is it is a financial commitment that you've made to this route as well. It is expensive to be able to go back regularly and keep that information up to date. So um, that when when people do buy the book, um, they support you in keeping that information up to date, and that benefits a lot of people. Yes, amen. All right, hey Sandy, thank you very much for making the time to do this, and thanks for also the huge commitment in writing a guidebook. Dave, thank you so much. It's been a real privilege. Thanks. Maria Slade joins me now. She's a high schooler from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Maria. Hi, Dave. Maria was a student in a group of students that I led this last summer on the Via Podiensis, which is the route from Le Puy-en-Velay in France to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And then we continued along the GR10 from there to uh, Andai and continued across into Spain, into Irun, and that's where we stopped. And uh, so what I wanted to really bring Maria on to talk about is... Uh, a couple of experiences from the trip uh, about a week in. So, you know, the first few days are pretty challenging. Maria, what do you remember from the the first few days of our walk in France? I remember being surprised at how hot it was. <laughs> um, I don't think I realized that we were going to be in the middle of a heat wave. It was pretty and hot. And obviously... Yeah, and obviously at the time, like, I didn't realize how long that heat wave was going to stretch, but that definitely caught me by surprise. Yeah, for sure. We uh, That opening week in, in France is uh, among the most physically demanding stretches of that walk, and we were going up into the Obrac Valley. Um, we then ultimately came down into Saint-Combe-de-Haut and uh, had a great dinner there, I remember. Yeah, that was, um, John and I made some questionable decisions. <laughs> we, uh, one of the things that we have to talk about with students is, uh, is about the importance of stretching your stomach out and getting sufficient calories. And Maria certainly did it that night. 
Yeah, yeah. There were some um, successes and some failures that night in terms of how much John and I decided to consume. But I think it was a learning experience. It was definitely a learning experience. But the good news was that you had uh, plenty of energy in your system for our walk the next day. And our walk was to Estong, which is um, just one of the most beautiful places that you could imagine. It's um, it's perched over a bend in the Lot River, and there is just this majestic chateau and church on top of a small hill and then surrounded by a bunch of just beautifully preserved stone buildings. Um, it is a, a spectacular sight. Like, what do you remember uh, about Estong from when you first arrived there, Maria? I remember... I was walking with Laura and we were kind of grumpy because you said that we would only have three hills, but then there was a little sneaky hill (laughs) right before, like you were walking on the road and there was a sneaky hill that you went up and then it brought you back to the road. And we kept wondering when the chateau was going to appear. And then when it did, it was kind of, it was quite literally like in a fairy tale where there's the river and then there's literally just this chateau right in the middle of like, the picture, the view, and it kind of, it was kind of incredible. It, it is pretty miraculous when you get there. It's, uh, it's one of the most spectacular sights of, of, of any Camino anywhere, I think. And our timing was great because we happened to be there um, for the biggest weekend of the year for a song, which is the Fete of saint Fleuret, which is the, the local saint. And, you know, this is a big deal in the town like people come back from wherever they may have moved out to it's just full of citizens year-round residents and visitors there's a parade there's a candlelight procession and of course there's a mass and so a handful of us went to mass that night along with pretty much the whole town filling up the church and maria i'll let you pick up the story from there yeah, um, so it's it's that was a nice segue into the into the experience. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, a group of us went to this mass. Actually, a lot of us didn't intend to go to the mass, and then you said that you were going to go, and you said that it was only going to be maybe like tops an hour. And so, a group of us thought, okay, that sounds cool. We can do that. Um, it was very warm in the church because, like you said, like at least 50% of the town was in that church. And um, I remember Janelle was the only French speaker in the people who went to the Mass, and she wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then there was a point where it got kind of quiet, and we all noticed that people were looking back at us, and it was making us kind of nervous. And then um, a supermarket clerk recognized us, and came back and said, you're pilgrims. We were like, yeah, yeah, we are. And she asked us to stand up and go to the front. And it kind of, and there were other pilgrims at the front, and I remember it striking me, like, how absurd this was, that we were being brought to the front of this mass that was celebrating this day that held significance for literally every single person in that church except for us. And we were being brought to the front, and we had no idea what was going on. And then... The priest was saying, he was blessing, he was going to do a blessing, that much we had gathered, and I think there might have been, like, maybe one person to your right, 
I think, and, I think that's but, right. Yeah, and then I yeah. was second in line for the Pilgrim Blessing. Yeah, so he was going to do a Pilgrim Blessing, and he he came over to bless you, and I I think it was a mixture of exhaustion and the heat and the absurdity of the situation, but <laughs> he was going to bless you, and then I turned around and looked. I think Shanti and Janelle were behind us, and it looked like one, like one of them was maybe laughing, mm-hmm. and I and that sort of set off this reaction in me where I kind of, it was like a little like earthquake was like in <laughs> me. Like I was, I was laughing, but no noise. I don't think at that point was coming out of my mouth. And like you in my head, shaking. I was panicking. Yeah. I was literally just vibrating neck. And then like he blessed me and it like got, it almost hit like a climactic point where I, I like opened my eyes after he was done and I looked and there was this, local who was staring he was wearing a red t-shirt and he was staring at me like dead in the eye and i like opened my mouth my mouth to try to like cough but then this little like like squeaking noise came out of my mouth and it it, like sounded like a gasp it was it was like a gasp and of course like in a stone church like it echoed and i just kind of like i kind of lost it and then and then I know Janelle and Shanti and I think Lucas all started laughing just a little, not as hard as I was laughing. And I just, I felt so awful, but now I, I need, didn't I need feel... to make it clear. I need to jump in here because this wasn't just like one little gasp, right? Like it, it really was <laughs> contagious. And the priest is continuing. We're, we're standing, it, it, this is not like a typical pilgrim blessing where pilgrims line up in the aisle and go up to the front and kneel before the altar and get blessed and then walk back to their seats. We are standing along the front of the altar. So we are basically, it's as though we're on stage looking out at the church full of French pilgrims. They're dressed up in their finery for the holiday mass. And, you know, you're starting to shake a little bit as I'm getting blessed. And then he comes over to you and now you're really starting to lose it. And then he's just continuing down the line while you are struggling to hold on for dear life. It was kind of, honestly, it was an enlightening experience. I think it was when I realized that um, I was going to need to work for redemption over the course of the rest (laughs) of the pilgrimage. Like it was, it was one of those moments and it didn't strike me so much how wrong it was until we were walking out. We were walking back to our seat and Janelle, Janelle like hits me in the arm and she's like, what the heck Maria? And I was, I'm, I'm obviously like, I'm not saying what she said, but basically she was very like, why did you do that? Because of course it set off a chain reaction with the rest of the group. So they mm-hmm. were all laughing and then they felt awful. And Oh, that was just, yeah, it was, it wasn't, I think it was when I made eye contact with the guy where I was like, Oh, he sees right through me. It was, he knows I like, he it was knew I wasn't horrifying. crying. It was pretty, and like your cheeks were, your face was so red, like the entire time. I may have hated so, you in the moment, so. Yeah, you know, did. I think you, it, and I was terrified for days after. I was like, Dave is never going to talk to me again. Like that was it. The, you know, it's one of those situations where I, I don't know if, if um, 
if the audience, if the French in that moment had uh, much of a sense of humor about what was going on. And, you know, I, I mean, I think we all recognized you know more than anyone else um, that this was not good. <laughs> Right. Like this was this was a, a holy day. This is a sacred moment. We're being blessed. Um, but at the same time, like sometimes things happen and you just can't control it. And this just sort of snuck up on you and came out. And it's no coincidence that Shanti and I now refer to a song exclusively as Shane Town. <laughs> there, like that. That is completely purposeful. I mean, there is no part of me that doesn't regret bursting it out into laughter in that church. That was, I like, I recognized that it was wrong. I don't know. I think it was, there were a lot of factors at play I spent that the next, made that happen. I spent the next five minutes just waiting, waiting for us to be able to leave the building. And then, of course, it didn't end because they brought out the relics of saint Florey. And everyone in the church lined up to go and kneel before and kiss the relic. And we just happened to be sitting right next to the relic where everyone was lining up. So as they lined up to come kiss the relic, they had the relic just to their right and they had us just to their left in this awkward <laughs> juxtaposition of the sacred and the... Whatever the condemned. opposite of the condemned. That's a good word for it. Um, so that was a moment, um, and it's certainly one to remember. But one of the things that makes for an interesting story, I think, is moving forward one day. Because the next day we had a long walk, uh, somewhere around 33 kilometers, I think, to Conk. And Conk is another gorgeous place. On this route, it is uh, uh, just this perfectly preserved little monastic village right in this crook in the hills. It's, it feels very much cut off from the rest of the world, and it has a huge cathedral that is totally outsized for the town. Um, but it's uh, it's a, a spectacular place, and pilgrims can stay in the monastery, and we did. And they hold a mass and a pilgrim blessing at night, and somehow. We worked up the nerve <laughs> to go back for another pilgrim blessing. So what was that like? Um, that was definitely, that was, the second try was kind of like my attempt to make right of my wrongs mm -hmm. going to that one. But that one was kind of, it was kind of surreal. I think Conk was the one where Lara read, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so she went up and read, and this, one of the priests, he was really young compared to the other ones, mm -hmm. and he, the most striking thing about that service was how he knew that we spoke English, and he made such a beautiful effort to translate what he was saying, and it occurred to us that the way he was I expressing love and the way he was describing the service to us was so the translation ended up being so much more beautiful than any native English speaker could make it. Mm -hmm. And he was so, he was so well-intentioned. There was such innocence in what he was doing and what he was saying that I think all of us felt like just genuinely blessed to be in that room with him as he 
did his best to include us in what was an incredibly holy experience for him, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't necessarily for us. It was a movie. So that was experience. a really that was it was a complete one eighty from this song. Yeah. And then after the the mass and the pilgrim blessing later in the evening, they dim the lights in the cathedral and the organ player, who apparently is one of the better organ players in the world, goes up and starts playing and it's a it's a 30 minute concert and i have this vivid recollection this vivid memory of sitting there in a pew towards the back of the cathedral and listening through the first couple of songs and then turning around and seeing you and lucas in just the most intense pose of I don't know, reflection uh, of, of thought of, I, I don't know what it was, but I mean, what were you, what were, how are you experiencing that concert? Um, I think I was being transported to a time and place that took me by surprise. I, there was a lot, it, it extended past like thinking about a song and feeling shameful and it extended to, I was back home. I was, thinking about where I was. I was thinking about how old it was. I don't know if the pose you saw us in, because at one point we quite literally got down and kneeled and we both just sat there and prayed for like five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and neither of us like have a concrete belief system. So it was astounding for us just in general to be sitting there doing what we were doing. And I think that made it, the fact that we were sitting there listening to the organ and felt moved to the point of praying in such an old structure was like that in itself was like the epitome of what pilgrimage could make you do. Like Mm. that was the spirit of pilgrimage right there. What we were pushed to do. Mm. You were a, a person who came into the trip with no religious connections, right? And yeah, no, and so how did this pilgrimage experience as a whole, looking back on it, did it have any impact on how you think about religion or spirituality and your relationship with those things? Yeah, there was actually, it was the second day that we were like climbing through the Pyrenees. It was the 16K day and I was walking alone and it had stopped raining for a little while and I was at this high ridge line and I looked up and the clouds cleared and there was blue sky and it struck me at that moment that anybody who was walking the same path that I was walking could not possibly see something like that and not believe that there was something in the universe that's bigger than us. And Mm. that feeling, that feeling was there before that moment in the Pyrenees and I think it has stuck with me since the end of the trip and while I don't I don't believe in in any I don't believe in any religion more now than I did before but there's a part of me that doesn't feel any sort of loneliness in the universe that I might have felt before I feel more comfortable considering the idea that there might be something more. And I think a lot of that is because of the experience of the pilgrimage. 
one experience you did not get on the pilgrimage was arriving in Santiago de Compostela because we walked just to the, the, the border with Spain. So we just barely crossed into Spain. We covered, you know, about 500 miles. So we made it basically to the halfway point from Le Puy. Um, but that's where we stopped. We didn't have the entire summer, you know, to walk. So I had avoided running a student trip like this before because I worried that it would feel less meaningful if we didn't arrive in Santiago or if we didn't arrive in Rome. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how it feels to you a few months removed from making the pilgrimage, from stopping on the border. How do you, how do you make sense of it and, and how does it affect the way that you think about the pilgrimage? It's kind of funny that like your perception was that it might take something away from the experience because it makes me think about how a group of us when we were in Paris were sitting out Notre Dame we were sitting outside of Notre Dame and we were so like <laughs> we were so bitter about all the <laughs> tourists and we and we and it was such it felt, and, or like when we went to Rocamadour and it felt kind of like a Disneyland mm-hmm. and like the significance of both of those places is probably along the same line as ending in a place of religious significance but mm-hmm. i think the most the most spiritual i've ever felt is when it was raining and we reached the ocean and every single one of us pretty much ripped off our shoes and socks and ran into the ocean and i can't think i don't I don't think anything was lost. I think we gained more by ending at the ocean than we might have had we ended at a place that would have admittedly been overrun by pilgrims. I think there was there was something about us as a group of 12 ending at the ocean that was, I don't know, I, it felt right. It felt more right than any other ending could have. One of the coolest things to me was uh, I remember seeing John just way out in the water, like wondering what on earth he was doing going out there, just sort of like uh, just riding in the waves. And then he said later that he had walked out as far as he could. He had literally walked as far as the land would allow him. And when he finally couldn't take another step without going underwater, he just started floating at that point. And so he had he had literally walked um, to the end of the earth, at least at that point, uh, in Undai in France at the at the end of our walk. And that was a I think that's a beautiful way to wrap it up. Yeah, I agree. Well, Maria, do you have any uh, any final thoughts about uh, about your pilgrimage experience? Anything uh, any last sentiments to share? Yeah, I, I guess. I guess I would say that I don't know that I am any more spiritual than I was, but I know that the person that I was going into the pilgrimage is not the same person that I was when I walked out of it. And I can't, I don't know, it's it's the place that I go back to in my vault of memories when I'm at a low point and I am incredibly grateful for that.
Zena Bell from Thousand Oaks, California joins me now. Hi, Zena. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. What is your Camino background? Uh, I did the Camino uh, in the started the September 30th of uh, 2015 and just finished on November 5th, 2015. Congratulations. Thank you. Where did you start? I uh, started in St. John. Great. And you made it to Santiago? Yes. That's... Yes. We went uh, with the whole family. Wow. That's awesome. So um, big group. Yeah. I had my dad who turned 74 the first day of the Camino and my two sons who were 29 and 25 and my daughter-in-law. Wow. What an incredible experience. Yeah. It was amazing. So we're going to talk about your favorite piece of gear in a second, but before we do, I just want to okay. ask you some some either or questions so we can get a sense of what your general gear preferences are. So okay. So did you do you favor a water bottle or do you did you use a hydration bladder on the Camino? Uh, mostly a hydration bladder. Okay, and do you prefer a sleeping bag or a sleep sheet? I had a sleeping bag and a sleep sheet actually. You had them both. Yeah, I sort of used, I used a liner and I used my sleeping bag as my as a blanket. I had a really lightweight down sleeping bag and I used it as a blanket. Nice. And you were walking into November, so I imagine you had some colder temperatures to deal with. Yeah, some of the places were quite chilly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, trekking poles, yes or no? Um, I had them and I used them intermittently. Okay. Uh, did you go with a poncho or a rain jacket? I want a rain jacket, and I was actually very happy with that. Okay. And then finally, did you, pref- did you go shoes or hiking boots? Um, again, sort of a hybrid. I had some Solomon sort of um, heavy, more heavy-duty, um, you know, trail shoes. Yeah. Uh, they, weren't, they, were kind of a, they were kind of a, a super lightweight boot or kind of a more of a heavyweight trail runner. Gotcha. So just r- right in between those, uh, those two Right, categories. and they were... Yeah, and they were waterproof because it was November, which was a really hard choice for me too. Waterproof, not waterproof, and I, mm-hmm. I finally did go with the waterproof. And um, you know, I, I was actually glad that I had those. I bet. Yeah, I think in the summer it's not necessary, and it can be tough on the breathability end of things that your your feet can get hot. But yeah, in late October, early November, I imagine you're you're really glad to have that protection for your feet. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then again, glad to have the uh, alternate piece of equipment that we're going to talk about because that provided the perfect balance. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you're, 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 you're still in the realm of footwear here to talk about your key piece of gear. So what was it? My key piece of gear was my Ufu sandals. And um, I actually was in a, in a store. I was looking for my Solomon boots, actually. And when I got there, um, I happened to be waiting for somebody, and they, I saw these shoes, and they were what they called recovery sandals and the guy at the store goes oh those are recovery sandals and I thought wow I, I that sounds like something I really need on the Camino recovery sandals and so <clears throat> I tried them on and I thought these are the most comfortable mm. sandals I've ever worn they have like this arch support and they're almost not not like a Tempur-Pedic but they have that feeling like cushy feeling and mm-hmm. I thought wow, these would probably be amazing at the end of the day <laughs> and then I bought the flip-flop style they have like a uh, more of a slip-on style or a flip-flop style, and I bought the flip-flop style so that I could just clip them onto my backpack. Mm-hmm. They were super lightweight, and um, and they were just so they felt so good after your feet at the end of the day when they were really really sore. Mm-hmm. But then after about 
probably maybe a week, because I think we were almost in Logroño. I, I, it was just a really long day. My feet were killing me. And um, I thought, I'm just going to slip these sandals on now instead of waiting for the end of the day. Yep. And I also wore in gingy socks that had the toes in them. Mm-hmm. And so it worked out perfect. Perfect, I just slipped, yeah. I slipped those uh, sandals on with my socks on. Looked kind of goofy, <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of part of the Camino thing, too, is to look a little goofy. So, um, but I just, I would wear them. I started wearing them about the last 10K of every day. And mm-hmm. they were just, they, they just saved me. And, you know, the, the boots would get, you know, your feet would get really sore, mm-hmm. you know, after, uh, towards the end of the day. And those Ufu sandals just, just saved me. And, uh, you know, there was a few days when it was raining that, yep. uh, you know, that you just couldn't really wear the sandals. But other than that, I pretty much wore them about the last 10K of every day from mm-hmm. after the first week. It is really nice to have that variety to be able to cycle through a couple different footwear options just to keep your feet a little bit fresher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when one when one thing starts rubbing somewhere bad, if you have some, if you have the other choice of something that's mm-hmm. a little bit uh, different different wear on your foot, it absolutely saves the day. Yeah, we have you you and I have very different uh, preferences in terms of sandals. You know, I go with Chacos, which are very firm and uh, and also quite heavy and uh, they're great for me but I also understand the appeal for you of that really soft kind of foamy sandal that is a total change of pace from your boots yeah and I actually looked at Chaco's mm-hmm. and and it, the weight was what kind of killed it for me but you yep. know this has that arch support in it and it probably is a little more heavier duty than you you know, when I say squishy, they're they're soft and mm-hmm. they give a little bit, but they they definitely give you fantastic arch support. And I think that's why what what the recovery part is in the sandals is the arch support at the end of the day, and um, which is kind of like the chacos have. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, great, Zena. Thanks for telling us about the the Ufu sandals. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, glad to glad to be a part of it, and I hope uh, somebody else that enjoys uh, some Ufu sandals on their Camino. Awesome. <laughs> And that's going to do it for today's podcast. I want to thank our guests, Sandy Brown, author of the new guidebook, Way of St. Francis, available from Cicerone Press, UK. You can also follow him on his blog at Caminoist.org. I want to thank Maria Slade for joining us and telling us some stories from the Via Podiensis, and Zena Bell for sharing her perspective on her favorite piece of gear. We'll be posting on a weekly basis now so i hope to have the next episode available around next saturday or sunday remember that you can subscribe on itunes you can follow us on soundcloud and you can always find direct links to the podcast on northerncaminos.com or my own personal blog dave whitson w-h-i-t-s-o-n.com thanks for joining us and have a great week